Welcome to the Burn Hickory Podcast, where you can listen to our sermons each week. Our mission is to reach everyone around us with the hope of Christ. And our goal is that you'll find a place where you can learn, grow, live, and thrive in a faith family. Now let's get ready to dig into scripture and see what God has for us today. I just wanted to call it to our attention today that today across all of our nation is what we just call Sanctity of Life Day. It's a day where churches all across our nation gather together to pray and to lift up and to really and truly show that we are behind and that we support life. From the womb to the tomb, we support those that are making really, really hard decisions in their world. And we today want to, as a church, just come together and pray that God would just miraculously give people a peace about the fact that there is a life inside of their womb. So would you do me a favor today and would you just join me in praying today for so many just really hard situations. Lord Jesus, today we lift up moms and we lift up families all across our nation that are even right now, Lord Jesus, trying to make a decision of what to do with a pregnancy. Lord, we come to you and we recognize in thankfulness that we have life, that you gave us life, that you created us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully known from our mother's womb. And Lord Jesus, today, we pray that God, so many people that are in a situation right now would have a peace about knowing that that is a life inside of them. And God, would you give them the courage to stand, the courage to continue this pregnancy on, and God, even the courage, if need be, to allow someone else to raise that sweet baby. Lord, we love you today. We stand with you today, Lord Jesus, with life, and we lift up all of these situations in your name. Amen. Amen. It's such an honor to know that this is a church that supports life from womb to the tomb and anywhere in between. Well, hey, welcome back to a series that we named three weeks ago, the beginning of this new year, that we just named it Rethink my life. Rethink my life. And what we're doing in this series is we're going through this idea that so goes our thoughts, so goes our life. And we know this to be true. Why? Because our thoughts drive our attention. Our attention drives our direction and our direction drives the habits and the purposes in our life. And what we've said from the beginning of this whole series is it is the things that we put our minds to that make the most difference in us. And we said that for the couple of weeks starting off this year, we're going to take some big chunks of some major key areas of our lives, and we're going to look at those specifically. We started week one with the idea of asking ourselves to rethink our relationship with Jesus. And we said from that whole first week out of Ephesians chapter two, the question was, do I know Jesus? Do I have a relationship with him? Has he forgiven me? Has he given me life, forgiven me of my sins? and set me on a track to be with him in eternity. And we said that we're not looking at this series through some deconstructionist mindset. 
But we're just asking ourselves quite honestly, do I know that I know that I have a relationship with Jesus? That was week one. Last week, we moved on to another topic. And last week, I asked you to rethink your relationship with the Word of God, with the Bible. And we answered the question last week, how do I know that the Bible is true? How do I know that it's true? It's not true because my mom told me it is. It's not true because some church tells me it is. It's not true because I tried it and it worked. We looked last week at the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, and the apostle Peter told us that there is proof in the truthfulness of Scripture. And that Scripture is true because it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. It was a reliable collection of historical documents that prove historically what it says. It is written by God and not man. It explains specific prophecies and fulfills them. And if all of that is not enough, Jesus said it is. This whole week, I've been praying for you guys and just really asking the Lord to solidify your relationship with the word. Why? Because other than your salvation, your relationship with the word of God is the single most thing that can shape you. It's the single most thing. So I hope this week you have spent some time in that. This week we're gonna move to another one of the really, really big things in our lives. And this week I'm just gonna ask you to rethink your understanding of worship. Your understanding of worship. Now, now let me just say this, because I know that as soon as I say the word worship, there's like a huge elephant in the room. Why? Because I already know some of you are flustered. For some reason, throughout the years, the idea of public worship has been one of the most hotly debated issues ever. This is probably one of the biggest emails that I get from time to time. Why? Because everybody has an opinion about worship and everybody loves to share it. All right? It's just kind of how it goes. It's kind of like college football and worship. They go right there together, right? I know that some of you, you came to this church because of the worship. Some of you know people who are no longer at this church because of worship and this guy right here. But I get that, right? I know that that's where it is, okay? I know that worship is huge, so much so that it shapes a lot of what a church does. So let me say this before we jump into the text. Burn Hickory, we absolutely value worship. We are committed to leading people in worship, so much so that we have two very distinct styles of worship that happen simultaneously every single week. And do you know what a pain that really is to be able to do that? It is a big deal. But we know that a lot of people's heart language of worship is different. And we're okay with that. We realize that. We know that everybody's expressiveness is different. Everybody's style of music is different. I mean, if we went to the parking lot right now and turned everybody's radio on right now and heard your playlist, none of us would agree, right? Absolutely. And we know that's how it is in worship as well. So we're so committed. We want people to wherever your heart language is to be able to worship fully, to be able to worship with everything you have. And we want this to be a place that anybody can come, no matter if you're four or no matter if you're 98, you can come and lift up King Jesus in a meaningful way that not only connects with your heart, but also 
also resonates with what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he said that our worship services should be so on point that when an unbeliever comes into this service, even they would be able to experience the power and the presence and the love and the majesty of God because of what is being shown by the believers that are in the room. And when they look at those believers and say, surely God is present. So listen, we're talking about public worship today. All right. Now I get there is a private worship that you should be having every day in the word and your time when you're praying and lifting up the king. But we're going to talk about our public worship today. And we're going to do it through 2 Samuel chapter 6, one of, if not possibly, the greatest and the most awkward worship moments of all time, of all time today. So if you've got a copy of scripture, I want you to join me in the book of 2 Samuel today. It's towards the front of your Bible. 2 Samuel, it comes right after, you guessed it, 1 Samuel. Uh, it's right after 1 Samuel. That's where we're going to launch out of today. And here's what we're going to do, just like almost every week. I'm just going to walk through the text teach through the moment in scripture. And then along the way, I'm going to pause at a couple places and I'm just going to point out seven kind of worship walkaway principles that I'm just going to ask you to rethink this week. I'm just going to ask you to ask God, where do I stand in this this week? All right. Second Samuel chapter six, starting in verse one. Here we go. We got some work to do today. It says this, it says David. Now that's King David we're talking about. David again brought together all the abled young men of Israel, 30,000. Now, I need you to think about this event. This is not four guys sneaking off in the darkness. This is 30,000 able-bodied young men, right? He and all his men went to Baha'u'llah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Okay, so what is happening here? David, King David, he goes after the ark. He goes to find the ark. Now, listen, this is not the Noah's ark. Right? If you're new to Christianity, those are two different things, right? That is two way big different things. Yes, it would take 30,000 people to move that, but that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about the ark of the covenant. The ark in the Old Testament represented the presence of God. It represented the power of God. It was God's central presence on this earth prior to, to Jesus walking on the earth. It was a gold box, if you remember right from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? It was a gold box. It looks a lot like that, actually, for those of you that remember the movie. It was a gold box, and it had on top of it this cherubim that represented the throne of God, and inside of it, it had three things. It had the jar of manna that represented the provision of God. It had the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments that Moses had that represented the law of God, and it had Aaron's staff that budded one day out of nowhere that showed the power of God. So you've got this gold box. It is the representation of God. It is the glory of God on this earth. It had a flat top on top of it. And on the top of this flat top would be called the mercy seat. And once a year, that is where the high priest would go into the temple to sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. So when you're seeing the box, when you're seeing the ark, Ark of God. It is God's presence. It's the reality of that is where sins were forgiven. That is what was pointing to who Jesus is. And the next thing you got to think about when reading this is if that was such a big deal and David is going down to retrieve this thing called the ark, where is it? And if it's such a big deal, why did they lose it, right? You got to ask questions about scripture. 
I mean, if it's the presence of God and you lose it, <laughs> that's a deal, all right? Now, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day because I think sometimes we can kind of fall in that. But how in the world did they lose it? Well, I'm glad you asked because I wanted to tell you this, all right? And this is the reason for me to tell you this because it's a great story. If you go back to 1 Samuel in, in chapter 5 and 6, you don't have to go there. You can read it later. You will see that Israel lost the ark in a battle against these people called the Philistines. Now, Israel at the time, when they lost the ark, they were not walking with God. They didn't care anything about God. They were not worshiping God. They were not singing to God. They were not doing anything about God. But they knew they had this big battle that was coming up. And so, instead of them just trying to go out to fight, they thought, hey, let's get everything lucky that we ever know, and let's take it out into this fight, and hopefully one of them will matter. In other words, they looked at God as just some lucky rabbit's foot. You ever done that before? where no part of your life is really represented in, but when you needed them, you just kind of call them at that moment. Well, that's what they did. Well, good news, bad news is, is that it didn't work. Israel not only lost the battle that day, why? Because you can't manipulate God. You can't force God into things. He's God, right? They not only lost the battle that day, but they lost the ark that day. They lost the ark to the Philistines, and the Philistines took the ark of God from them in the battle. Well, the Philistines, what do you do with the ark? You take it back to your own little pagan god temple. Why? Because that's where you put all of the little godly things, if you're a pagan, into the temple. So what did they do? They took the golden ark back to the temple of this guy named Dagon. Dagon, I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. It sounds like Lord of the Rings, but it's in the Bible, right? They took it back to their pagan temple of their little god, Dagon, and they brought the ark into their temple that night. They thought, victory speech, here we go. We won, good news, we captured all of their stuff. Well, they went to bed that night, and all of a sudden, during the night, the whole city gets overrun by rats. Gets overrun by rats. They woke up the next morning, and everybody had these tumors all over their body. They woke up that next morning, and they went to the temple of Dagon, and the statue of Dagon, their little jihad, I might add, had fallen on its face, face down in the temple. Well, they thought, well, that's a strange coincidence, right? What do we need to do? Well, I know what you do. You stand that statue back up, and we'll go about our business and maybe find something to cure the tumors, right? The next night, guess what happened? Oddly enough, the statue falls over again. The second night the statue falls over, though, his head pops off and his hands pop off as God's saying, okay, you mess with me, watch this. Well, this got them thinking, hey, we don't want this thing. We don't want this art thing because not only is it getting rats everywhere, giving everybody these cancerous tumors on them, now our statue is all broken and how can we worship? So what do they do? They send it to another Philistine city because that's what you do when you really don't like your neighbors, right? They send it over to their city. Their city does the same thing. They take this whole, they take the ark, they put it into their temple, and guess what? Strangely enough, happens in their city? The same thing. This happens in multiple cities. The, the Philistines are passing this ark back and forth between the cities until finally they decide we don't want this thing any longer. Get this thing back to the Israelites. Get this thing back to God's people. It's killing us. So what do they do? They come up with a plan. They build this cart. They come up with a couple of big oxen, right? These, these couple of animals. And they put the ark on the, on the new cart. They also, just for kicks and to try to kind of get, the, get God off their back, they send off these statues, these golden statues of rats that they had made and tumors that they had made. You got to love the Bible, right? To hopefully get rid of this curse that was on them. Well, they get the cart started, and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the oxen that were pulling the cart automatically start walking back towards Israel, 
towards Israel. They walk so far, they cross over into Israel. And all of a sudden, this guy named Shemesh, this, this Hebrew guy, sees the ark of God being pulled on a cart. And he thinks what everybody thinks when you see something that nobody's around. Finders keepers, right? Finders keepers. What does he do? He goes out. He gets the ark of God. I'm not making any of this up. You can fact check me later. He goes out. He gets the ark off of the cart. He puts it into his house. He has a party at his house one night. Evidently, things got a little bit out of control, and his family decide they want to look inside the ark, and guess what happens to them? Ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Their faces melt off. I'm just kidding. That didn't happen, all right? That didn't happen. That didn't happen. But what did happen is they all died. They all died because of their irreverent act. They died right there. So Shemesh decides, man, this thing's not staying in my house. Get it out of here. He calls some priests from the town next to them to come get this thing out of my house. So the priests come and they take it to a man named Abinadad's house. And Abinadad puts it into a spare room in the back of his house. And I'm not really sure this is just me reading into it, but I think he put a sign on the door that says, don't touch, right? Don't touch, right? Leave it alone. Probably didn't do that, but you know what I'm saying. So for 20 years... God's presence is shoved in the back corner of a house of a man named Abinadad. Man, this is not in your notes. This has nothing to do with the sermon today, but let me ask you something. Does that represent a large portion of your life where God's presence, you know it was around, but you've shoved it and shoved it and shoved it and shoved it to where now it's just forgotten. It stays there for 20 years. All that was 1 Samuel 5 and 1 Samuel 6. You can go read it later. So now, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David says, hey, we got to bring God's presence back to God's people. Look at verse 3. That took a long time to get to verse 3. Amen? Here it is. It says, they set the ark of God on a new cart. This is David. He's going to get it from Abinadab's house, right? And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, Uzzah and Ahio, Sons of Abinadab were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahu was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with, with castanets and harps and lyres and thimbles and cisterns and cymbals and fog and lights and smoke and guitars and all of that stuff was going on, right? What were they doing? They were getting into the moment. They were worshiping. They were praising God because the presence of God was coming back to where it belonged. Verse 6, when they came into the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Why? Why did he do it? He didn't want it to fall, right? Look at verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. The Hebrew here just points towards he had just a casual view. He's like, I just hold that thing up or just kind of do what I want to do. Watch this. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there before or beside the ark. Now watch the next verse. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broke out against Uzzah. Now, I said this last week, but I love how honest the Bible is. It tells us that David was offended here by God. David was like, wait a minute, God. He was doing you a solid. I mean, what gives right here? That's crazy. Now he's dead? Come on. This hit me probably stronger last week than it ever has hit me, probably because of teaching the Bible last week a little bit. 
But you do realize that we're not the first generation that has ever been offended by the Bible, right? We're not the first generation that has risen to this level of knowledge to where we feel like that we're like ahead of the Bible. Even the writers of the Bible were sometimes offended by the Bible. Why? Because we are a sinful man. We are a finite man. Our limited 90-ish years at best on this earth has nowhere to even be held close to who God is and how holy God is and how big God is and how he wants to love us. No, the writers of scripture even got offended some Sometimes and how to just go, hey, God, I don't really understand this. I don't really know all of this, but God, all I can do is put my yes on the table. And one day it'll be clear. But look at the next verse, what happens? Verse nine, it says, David was afraid. He's now gone from angry to afraid, if you noticed, of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, I know that means nothing to us, but here's what that really means. That means that David got so scared, he got so kind of out of wonk in his theology that he sent the presence of God to a pagan man that wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't a Hebrew. He was a Philistine, and he sent it over to his house. Now, I know that seems like a really weird place to stop the story, but I want to point something out that old Uzzah's life has just showed us right here that I think is important for us. In fact, write this principle down. There's a danger in flippantly approaching and worshiping a holy God. There's a danger in flippantly approaching and worshiping a holy God. We, we saw it, first of all, with Israel losing the ark to even begin with, and then we see it right here with Uzzah on the cart. I mean, let's talk about old Uzzah just for a minute. What was he supposed to do? Was he just supposed to let the ark fall on the ground? I mean, it looks like he was doing the right thing, right? But God punished him. Well, it looks like that from the outside looking in, but if you know your Old Testament history, and if you know your ark history, you know that God had set this thing apart as sacred, had set it apart as his presence, and you did not touch it. God had specific instructions of how to be in his presence, how to be in the ark's presence. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 25, it even shows us that on the outside of this gold box, there were these rings that they would have put these long wooden poles through that the Levites specifically would have taken these poles and put them on their shoulders and walked with the ark without touching the ark and had a cover that was to be put over it just in case you were to touch it. All of this was described in Exodus 25, but the Israelites went down to get the ark and they just ignored all of the biblical commands and they moved the ark in the way that the pagan Philistines had taught them how to do it. They just thought, well, it's just easier. It's just a shorter view. It's just way not, I mean, why not just do that? It's way easier to do it. Here's the point. We don't get to decide how we come into God's presence. God decides that. We don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide how to worship God. God does it. Why? Because he is holy and we're not. He is all-knowing and we're not. He is God and we're not. And our role is to follow him, to hold high his presence, and to invite his presence into our life through the lens that our sin has been covered by King Jesus. That is our role. Not to flippantly approach him like he's a lucky rabbit's foot or when we want to or only when we need him or here and there or we have nothing better to do. That's what Uzzah has just taught us. So this kind of freaks David out a little bit. And what does he do? He sends the ark away, right? He thinks that the ark is a big problem until God finally shows David that, that listen, God's presence is a, 
is a blessing in your life. In fact, look at verse 11. Watch what it says. It says, the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And watch this. The Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. It was like God was sending him a message and God is showing us right here this principle. Write this down. Here's the principle. God's intention was and God's intention is to bless us with his presence. Do you realize that? That a holy God has blessed us with the ability to even call his name, to even know his name, to even be able to lift him up. That's what it's showing us right here, that we're not coming in flippantly. We're coming in here because God has already even just blessed us in being able to connect with him, a holy God. And David finally gets this. And what happens in David's life? His faith is renewed. In fact, look at verse 12. Watch what happens. So David went to bring the ark of God, bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, look at this next word, with rejoicing. With rejoicing. Write this next principle down. I know they're coming quick, but watch this. Here's what it's teaching us. When we truly understand the motives and intentions of a good God, Pure rejoicing is always a byproduct. Here's what that means. In other words, you shouldn't have to try to worship when you really understand who God is. You shouldn't have to try to conjure up some fake emotion when you really understand who God is. That's why I started the whole message off by saying salvation is number one, the word of God is number two. Because when you link those two things together, the byproduct of realizing more and more and more and more and more who God is and what God has done is always rejoicing. Some of us don't have a worship problem, we have a God problem. Some of us don't have a worship problem, we have a reality of we don't understand how good God is and what what God wants to do in our lives. Look closely at what it just said right here. Look at verse 13. It says, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Look closely at what it just said, right? When those who were carrying the ark. Now, what is just swapped right here? Notice it's no longer on a cart like the Philistines did it. It's no longer just being pulled by animals, right? No, they're doing it the right way. They're doing it the Exodus 25 way. They are carrying it with full honor and full respect and full honor and reverence. When they took six steps, notice what happened. They made a sacrifice. Why is it six? Well, six is the number for imperfect man. Seven is the number for perfect God, right? They took these six steps and they sacrificed a bull onto the ark. Why? Because it was representing that the blood was being shed for their sins to remind them of who God is, to remind them of what God wanted to do in their lives. It was to cover their sins. It was to show what God wants to do and to continually, every sixth step of their life, remind them of what God wants to do. Listen, church, that's the gospel. The gospel in our life is not that we're shedding the blood of a bull onto the altar of God, but the gospel of our life is that Jesus one day made this sacrifice for us so that we could walk in the presence of God, so that we can know that we're in the presence of God, so that we could forever walk into his promise. Jesus has covered us with his love, and he's no longer going to bring us the death of Uzzah. He's no longer going to bring us the tumors of the Philistines. Why? Because Jesus 
has made a way, but he's given us life. He's given us the way, and there should only be one thing that we do because of that, and that's to worship him. That's to worship him. Here's the principle. Watch this. Write it down. Worship is the only logical response of a life that realizes what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. It's the only response. Once again, I don't think we have a worship problem. I think we have a Jesus problem. I don't think we have a worship problem. I think it's a response problem of us not really realizing what Jesus is doing, has done, and will do for us. Look at the text right here. Watch what happens when you understand this. Because where where there's no worship, there's no understanding of salvation. But watch David closely. A lot of text here. Verse 14. He says, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Must not have been a Baptist church, but you see what I mean, right? There it is. I mean, what else do you do when you realize that you are before a God that has saved you? Now, I know this whole linen ephod thing doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us, but think of it like this. David is a king. He wore the kingly robe, the kingly dress. He is distinctively the king because of how he looked, because of how he walked, because of how he dressed. But at this point, it says that David, wearing only his ephod. What is an ephod, you ask? Glad you said that. It is adult underwear. That is all it is. In fact, I got mine on right now. I'm just kidding. That is all it is. All it is, he stripped down to nothing. He took off his kingliness and he wanted to be before the king of kings with nothing but who God had made him. That's what he's doing right here. He wanted his heart to be before the Lord. It's an expression of his humanity. But watch what happens in verse 15 when you worship sometimes. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, this is his wife, I might add, watched from a window when she saw King David leaping and dancing around before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he gave them a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Keep going, verse 20. It says, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, notice it always says the daughter of Saul, right? She's the antagonist, you're gonna see that came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In other words, Michael looked at David and says, you fool, that is not how a king acts. But listen to what David said, somebody that understood what God had did for him. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his household when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people, Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become, catch this, even more undignified than this. I'm not really sure how you do that, but I will become even more undignified than this and I will humiliate, be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held 
and honor. Now, I know that's a lot, so let me give you the cliff notes or the spark notes for you young people, right, of what David just said, right? David just looked at his wife, Michelle, or Michael, and said, listen, my dear, God chose me. God made me who I am. God saved me, and now I don't really care what anyone else thinks. What I care is that the maker of the universe, his glory, is being put on display. And it's only because of God and what he has done that I have life. And David says, and I don't care who knows it or what they know, because the maker of the universe has set us apart. That's worship. That's where it's, and it's especially meaningful when you know who Michael is right here. She was the daughter of Saul. And if you know anything about King Saul, his one fault in life was that he cared way more about what people thought of him than what he cared about what God thought of him. In fact, write this principle down because this is what Michael's teaching us here. She's saying this, we will never worship God with all of our heart. If our concern with what others think is stronger than our concern with what God thinks. Students, listen to me really closely. When your concern with what other people think is higher than your concern with what God thinks, you will never walk in his presence. You won't. And who cares what the other boneheads around you think anyway? It's the maker of the universe, what David just said, is the one that matters. David says, look, what did he say? I don't care what people think about me. In fact, I don't really want them to think about me at all. I want them to think about God. This is why he took off the kingliness. This is why he took off the robe, was so that it was just him and God, as pure as possible. I'm by no means saying that's how the end of the service needs to happen, but what I am saying is that we need to understand that part of us needs to take off the shell that we have on around us and stand before a holy God that has given us life and say, thank you, Jesus. Then David said, by the way, honey, verse 22, remember the slave girls? I don't really care what they see because my prayer is, is they don't see me, but they see a God that can heal them, that can know them, that can love them. And if they see that he can set me free, he can set them free as well. You see, here's the deal. Worship is a vertical relationship with God, us looking to God, but it also carries a horizontal relationship, a missional element. In fact, write this principle down. We just saw it. When other people see our public worship response to a holy God, they too will be drawn to his goodness, his power, and his love. That's why public worship is so meaningful. It's not meaningful because we want to shame you to be here. It's meaningful because when other people see the believers in Jesus recognizing who God is, recognizing what God does, recognizing how God has delivered, it gives them the encouragement to know that God can do that for them as well. And God can lift them as well. And that's really hard to do when we're flippant about our worship and we're coming in as Uzziah did. We're coming in as Michael did from the window, but it's not when we begin to strip off ourselves and say, yes, King Jesus, move in me. Move in me. In fact, let me just tell you this. This is the last principle. This is worship is simply us putting God's worthiness on display. That's it. That's the most simple definition of worship I've ever been able to find. It's me and it's you, those of us that have been delivered by Jesus, saying, yes, you're worth it, God. 
That's all worship is. Worship is two words, worth and ship. It is me saying and declaring God he is worth it and declaring to others that he is worth it. So here's the question I got for you. What does your worship tell others about the value you place on God? What does your worship say? Do they see the joy you have in him? Do they see the honor you put in him? Do they see the value you have for him? Look, I'm not trying to be judgy, I promise. But when you cruise in here 20 minutes late with five cups of coffee, looking at your cell phone every two and a half minutes and not caring what's going on anywhere but with the person beside you, what is that saying to God about his glory? What is that saying to the people around us about his glory other than the fact that I could care less? And I don't care if you drink your coffee. You drink your coffee. But praise him while you're doing it. Lift him up while you're doing it. Do you see where I'm going with this? We are showing others by how we respond to God, how they should respond to God, and what God has done in us. Now, I get it. I, I get it. I know where you're going. Matt, I'm just not an overly expressive person, right? I'm not either in worship. You say, Matt, come on, look at you. I really am not. I'm really not. But I am just going to say this. We're expressive in other things. And probably your expressiveness in other things should match your expressiveness in worship. And there probably shouldn't be a weight somewhere that's out of want, right? I mean, think about it like this. Is your level of excitement of what God does in your life the same as is it your kid's ball game, t-ball game, amen, right? You've been in one of those lately? Is it the same as it is at your kid's sports event? Is it the same when you're watching your sports team at whatever arena you're at? I've been, to some, I've been with some of you at those places. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it the same as when you go to that concert you just paid for? Yeah, been there with you? Or is it the same as if somebody just walked up to you and handed you a million dollars? Listen, if somebody walked up to you and handed you a million dollars and you're like, yeah, praise Jesus. <laughs> then, then you worship like that, right? You got my full permission. But if it ain't, then we're missing it. I love the story in Luke 7, 47, where this lady falls at Jesus' feet and anoints his feet. And Jesus teaches the disciples around him this idea, because they're like, damn, that lady's a little freaky. What is she doing, right? You know who that lady is, Jesus? Jesus looks at him and says, hey, those who have been forgiven much love much. Church, possibly our struggle with worship is just the fact that we just don't get that. We don't get the idea that we no longer take six steps and worship over the ark, that we have a savior that has done it for us. Possibly we don't get the fact that his blood was shed for us. Possibly we don't get the fact that Jesus gave his life for us. And why would we not want to tell people what he's done for us? How could we not publicly worship him and tell him what he's done with us? Why would we not let our worship show our hearts? I get it, I'm gonna say it again. We're not all equally emotional in our worship. I get it. We're not all like these people up here that know all the motions and stuff to do and the leg kicks and the back. I know we don't know all that, right? We don't know it. But what I am saying is this. Worship is us telling God who he is and us telling others who he is. And if we're not doing it, we're not lifting it up. Man, scripture's really clear. Over 20 times, this says, hey, lift your hands to the king of kings because he's delivered you. You ever seen your three-year-old? That's exactly what he does to get to mama. It's really clear when it, there's commands for us to shout. There's commands for us to clap. I was just up in the classic service about 30 minutes ago. Man, them people were throwing it down up here. I walk out of here and they're like, yeah, get to it. Get the guy up there to yell so we can get out of the parking lot. Right? No. The king 
has saved us. But Matt, I just don't feel like worshiping. Yeesh. Man. Let me ask you this then. Since when do we let our feelings determine if we will obey God? That's the point, right? This whole series is that our thoughts shape our lives. What if God is waiting on you to say, yes, Father, to begin to just pour his spirit into you? The question is not, do we not feel like it? The question is, is he worthy? The question is not, man, I I just don't feel like, you know, I got some stuff going on. The question is, is he worthy enough to deliver you from the stuff you have going on? I love this passage. You know why? Because half the time, I kind of feel like the wife, Michael. I kind of feel like I'm just peering from the window a little bit going, man, I wonder what's going on over there. Some of the times I feel like Uzzah. We're just out of my irreverence for God. I think I can just bust into his presence however I want to. But I'm gonna tell you, man, I just want my heart to be like David's. To where when I walk into a moment that I can lift up my king, that nothing else matters. To say, yes, Jesus, you're worth it. Lord Jesus, today, as we close the service in worship today, Jesus, um, God, my, my prayer today, God, is not that, that, that we would be phony, but God, that our hearts would show who you are. And our lives would display your goodness, your love, your mercy. And God, that we can worship the King. You know, your head's bowed and your eyes closed today. I'm just gonna ask you, maybe your worship problem is because you've never had a moment in your life where you have given Jesus your heart. And it's hard to worship something that you don't get. Let me just say this during the invitation today. If today is the day you need to surrender your heart to Jesus, I'm gonna be standing up front to your right. And I'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. But maybe today you are a believer and and you just got some serious stuff going on and you just really feel like it's hindering your worship. You just need somebody to come beside you and walk with you for a few minutes in prayer and that. I've got some people with me that would love to pray with you in just a minute. But for the rest of you today that know Jesus, love Jesus, I want to give you just a couple of minutes today to express his worthiness. Lord, walk with us in these next minutes. Show us who you are. Let us show others what you've done in us and how worthy you really are. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Were you inspired? Maybe you've got questions. Do you want to know more about Jesus? Then we'd love to hear from and connect with you. So take the next step with us by visiting burnthickory.com next. Again, thanks for listening. And hey, stay tuned by subscribing and stay up to date by downloading the Burn Hickory app.